Welcome to Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is your host, Asha. This is our third episode of Bushwick Junction, and we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, Bushwick Junction is a show about life's inflection points. It's a show about the crossroads in our lives, the decisions that we choose to take when we get to them. Uh, It's about how we decide to do things, whether we tap into our intuition or make lists until uh, until we can't even think straight anymore. Uh, and it's about whether our choices matter. It's a show about whether when we get to... I'm really struggling today. <laughs> yeah. Um, I usually have this written down in front of me. Uh, whether our choices matter, how much uh, the things that we decide to do or not do really affect our fate. Uh, so I'll let today's guest introduce himself. Um, go ahead. Hi, I'm Vijay. I'm a host of the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. And I consider myself a poet and librarian. I'm a librarian by trade, but I consider myself a poet and a, a Buddhist. Um, you know, over the years I've been studying Buddhism, the past 10 years I've been studying Buddhism. And a lot of my poetry is informed by that. And it's informed by um, my life story. So, um, that's a great introduction. I yeah. like the non-brief, brief introduction, <laughs> getting into the details. Um, so I think that to start out today's episode, we're going to go through VJ's junctions just like we do with everyone else. But um, he wanted to share with us a poem or two. Yeah. So this uh, poem is from the collection Escape from Samsara, which I published in 2016. And a lot of the poems are directly informed by my life and the, the junctions in my life. So uh, this one's called Confession Poem. When he saw me reading a Buddhist book, my sleep study technician let me know I will go to hell. He studied all the religions, and the only way to protect yourself is by accepting Christ's love. Despite my non-belief in the Godhead of Jesus, I cried at the ending of the last temptation of Christ and felt the release of all the suffering I'd endured as a child. At the age of 11, a bully had turned his seat to me to say, you're a waste of life that no one cares about. After days of this, I I asked the teacher to change seats, and she condescendingly said, It's about time you asked me that. I had my first crush in the sixth grade um, on a beautiful brunette. When asked by a classmate how I felt about Mary, um, I said, She's okay, I guess, and ran my hands through my hair. Years later, when Mary posted pro-life images of an aborted baby on a, a Facebook discussion about women's rights, instead of responding, I would recall the image of her crossing her arms behind her back that first day I met her and the rising flexions of the St. Joseph's nuns singing her namesake's praise. Wow. So, yeah, thank you. So that kind of gives you a sense of my childhood, because like, I, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. I was born and raised in Staten Island, New York. Okay. And uh, I went to Catholic school from first to eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were followers of Satya Sai Baba, who was a guru who lived in India, uh, and he died only in 2011. So... Um, they very much were into the unity of all religions. The, the movement, Satisai Baba movement, was about uni- uniting all religions. So they sent me to Catholic school. And it was a difficult time, but uh, you know, it was informed by this idea that, um, that I was like a, a student of all religions. You know, That's super interesting. Thank you. Is that, what's your relationship to their religion, essentially. Do you? So, I, I, I appreciate Jesus as a, a figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a big discussion with a, a friend of mine for 25 years. He, he, was, he was raised as a Catholic. And on my show, I had a discussion with him about him moving towards atheism. And I was beside him a lot of those years. 
And I think that uh, definitely my thoughts towards religion are very complex. Mm -hmm. But now I kind of align myself with Buddhism because I feel like I'm more uh, of an observer of life. And, uh, you know, uh, another guest was saying about how uh, experience, imagination, observation are the three things that are the foundation for uh, writing. So my experiences, I observe my experiences and I add in an element of imagination that helps inform me as a writer and as a person, uh, kind of exploring my emotional landscapes, my psychological landscapes to understand my own experience and being observed. I think Buddhism is very much aligned with kind of observer mentality, yeah. observing ones through meditation or through meditative spaces. Can you repeat the three things? Uh, so experience, Ex- uh-huh. observation, and then imagination. Cool. So, I yeah. love that. Thank you. I love elegant principles. Um, so the first question on this show, you kind of already addressed, I'd say. I think mm-hmm. you definitely got at it with your parents uh, and their religion, but Tell us about the situation you were born into and what a normal life outcome might have looked like for, yeah, I, the, for the person you were born as. Sure. I, I was born uh, August 8th, 1978 in uh, Staten Island, New York. Oh, so you told I did me a little that bit. you interested in astrology. Yeah, I did. I didn't I've been tell interested. you, but I'm very into astrology also. I took some classes with uh, a teacher of mine, religious teacher of mine, who I continue to keep up with. And... Um, I looked at my birth chart and mm-hmm. I kind of understand, have somewhat of an understanding of kind of that. Uh, although I'm sun sign is Leo, mm-hmm. Pisces is a big influence on me because it was the on the horizon ascendant, uh-huh. is the ascendant, and Pisces, the Piscean ideas, and Neptune is a major influence on me. Mm-hmm. So Neptune being kind of into the intuition, the spirituality, and that's been a big influence on me. So um, all these, I don't really think of them as planetary influences per se, but energies in our lives. And totally. these centers of energies have had huge influences on me, yeah. I see it the same way. Like, maybe it is the planet. Of course, this big celestial yeah. object and its position in the sky is in, exerting some in energy mm-hmm. and influencing us in some way. Can you just, like, real quick go through your whole birth chart so just uh, so I can, like... I don't know if I could do that, but I can, basically <laughs> uh, there's, like... Because uh, I, st- I looked at it and I studied it, uh-huh. but I, I didn't retain a lot of that information. Right. But I know, like... Um, the moon sign, I believe, is Libra, but oh, I can't really. I, this all those three things are the major influence. That's all I can really say about that. But um, my interest in it is basically in how the energies move throughout my life. Yeah. And uh, last time I did a reading, he was saying that uh, um, things were starting to line in 2018. So basically, like you know, on my 40th birthday, he was saying like you know, my communicated to me was that all the planets are kind of really building towards that momentum. Uh, that he gave a lot of positive aspects of the planetary, the uh, progress chart, they call it. So right. it's like how, how we're influenced by as we move along in life. Yeah. Cool. We did get a little off track there with that yeah. question, though. <laughs> Can you tell me? So I know, know you're a Leo. I know you're yeah. born in August, yeah. born in Staten Island. Uh-huh. And I know that you went to Catholic school and I know your parents' religion. Did, yeah. is that Does that cover it all? Uh, that covers the beginning of my life. Yeah. And then... Okay. Uh, I think the next major junction, uh, well, I just uh, addressed like kind of writing and, and my interest in writing. And the next major junction was when I went to college. Really? So um, No childhood junction. Yeah. The, I mean, I think that the one junction was like kind of like, because I went to in the poem, it kind of addresses like my feelings towards the childhood. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, in the fourth grade, I remember I started uh, this book called Professor Waz in the Land of Waz, <laughs> which is basically like a riff off of the uh, Oz series I was reading. Uh-huh. So I was very interested in uh, Wizard of Oz, and I, I read a lot of the books. I think there there's, there's a series, like Frank Baum wrote um, 
the first I think ten or so books, and then uh, Thompson, Ruth Thompson, I believe, or I forget the first name, but Thompson wrote a series of books after that. So I read like pretty much all of them uh, by the time I hit the fourth grade, fourth or fifth grade, and then uh, I started writing this book called Professor Waza, which is about this professor who created a world in a microcosm, mm-hmm. and he observed that the prince of this world was like kidnapped. So he decided him and his talking dog decide to go into the world to intervene and like try to save the prince. So I had this whole storyline kind of mapped out and uh, I was writing it. And then uh, some kid, I guess, like stole the manuscript and started scribbling over it. Oh, no. So I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure who did it. It was just basically I found it one day kind of out of my bag and was all scribbled Aww. all over. So, but then uh, I haven't really done a novel attempt since then. I'm now a major uh, novel kind of thing. But I've done a lot of like writing um, you know, since then, mostly in poetry and memoir and stuff like that. This yeah. book that you just read from, for those uh-huh. uh, listening from home, is it, is it a published book? Did you self-publish it? Yeah, I self-published it, but it's it's available through Amazon and such. Cool. So um, it's called Escape from Samsara and then Samsara. So Samsara being like the uh, endless cycle of rebirth and birth that we go through. Yeah. But I define it as the psychological process by which we uh, create the world we exist in moment by moment. So that's kind of the way I frame the uh, samsara, and then escaping the psychological process by which we um, break free of these habitual patterns and find inner peace. So, wow. Yeah. So your first junction is basically starting to write. Yeah. And it's something that's still part of your life right now. I feel that people who, you know, are writers at their core, are creators at their core, describe like, I have to, I, I can't live without it, I always have. Did you? Did you feel that way? Did you like... When you tried out writing, do you remember it being just like very natural to you or did it feel like you trying something new that, and liking it? Yeah, I think that since I, in the early childhood, I was a very big reader. Yeah. So that was that finding my voice and the inspiration of, of all these books I was reading uh, gave, gave me the impetus to continue to write. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it is a struggle in the sense of craft wise. So, um, you know, although it, uh, the desire to write is very fluent in me, mm-hmm. uh, sitting down and, and creating something that was, you know, since I was reading, I was reading a lot of classics uh, growing up in the middle school and high school. So to come up to that level, I felt like my standards are very high. So, um, you know, I was uh, reading material that was, you know, extremely some of the greatest literature uh, written. And then to kind of have that standard was a little difficult for me. Yeah. But uh, then I started, when I broke into poetry in high school, into high school, when I started to understand poetry, it started to become more natural to me that this is the form and what I want to express myself in. And um, that, that felt a little bit more fluid for me. Right. Yeah. That's so funny. <clears throat> I, I also wrote a book in the fourth grade, and I've uh-huh. never written anything since. Uh, yeah. I mean, I writ- wrote, you know, in college and when yeah. I had to, but... As far as self-directed writing, apart from journaling, yeah. our, my book was called Peach and the Unicorn, and it was also about ima- an imaginary world. Oh, cool. And like fantasy? Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, it was, like I was in the fourth grade. I yeah. was like 10. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've never written anything since then, really. It's just not my, not my avenue. Yeah. So your next big junction is going to college. Yeah. I like that one as a junction. I think deciding where and how and under what circumstances to go to college is kind of like the first time we, we really individuate in our society. Yeah, I remember so. this moment when I was reading about Vassar College. Uh, they had this description in the college book that said uh, um, something along the lines of 
that the kids of the college were uh, considered themselves beautiful people and they drank black coffee and smoked cigarettes, clove cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And even though I think that now looking back on it, perhaps the writer of that passage was trying to be kind of tongue-in-cheek or sarcastic. Yeah, kind of mean. It seemed, yeah, it seemed almost like, you know, uh, now looking back, I realized when I read it, I was like, beautiful people smoking clove cigarettes, what, you know, drinking black coffee. That sounds so great. Yeah. You know, but I, you know. But the reality his was that dig yeah, was yeah. like your dream. Yeah, yeah, his, yeah, exactly. So you grew up as yeah. a city kid, though, or were you mostly limited to Long Island? Uh, Staten Island. So it's Sorry, part of yeah, Staten it's part Island. of uh, New yeah. York City, but it's it has a suburban feel, right? To it. Did you uh, spend a for, lot of time in Manhattan? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, we went to Manhattan uh, occasionally. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, with sound kids and, and New York City kids was called Manhattan the city. So right. even though it's a bar, you know, all the boroughs are part of New York City. So we would be like, we'll go to the city every now and then. We'll take the ferry in. But, um, you know, the main time I spent was on Staten Island and such. Yeah. Gotcha. So you <coughs> sort of had exposure to and had a taste for kids who wore all black and smoked clove cigarettes. Yeah. Where did your did your parents have? Did, were they supportive of Vassar? Yeah, I think that um, my sister had gone to Bryn Mawr. Oh. So they had some, you know, these kind of very similar yeah. seven sisters and all that. Mm-hmm. So um, they were supportive. Um, I think that a lot of ways my sister kind of paved the road for me to be more uh, free with my choices because, you know, ultimately she ended up becoming a doctor and she followed a more traditional route for many Indian Americans. Um, but for me, they, I, they gave me the liberty to choose. Uh, I'm kind of fast forwarding, but it gave me the liberty to uh, be myself and, you know, kind of not feel the pressure that sometimes Indian Americans feel yeah, about, totally. you know, being science or being in. I was able to go pursue the humanities and all that. And my parents are very encouraging about that. That's great. Sounds like they're very open-minded people. Yeah, thank you. So you chose Vassar. How uh-huh. was your experience there? So, I mean, it was it was difficult because uh, what happened was in the first six months or so, uh, you know, I had this infatuation with someone, a woman who was attending the school, and uh, the infatuation was not, was not reciprocated, it was not mutual. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, uh, when, the, when the relationship or friendship dissolved, uh, you know, I fell into a little bit of a depression. Also, be- also because of the fact that it was difficult for me to transition into college. I mean, I'd been kind of in a sheltered environment to totally. some extent, and for me, it was difficult to transition to college, kind of going on for- off of my yeah, own. Yeah, that was the worst year yeah. of my life. Yeah, it was very difficult. But then, uh, I was ultimately I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in the in '97 of that, like right in the middle of the first year. Okay, '97, uh, yeah, around that time. So. Um, I end up leaving. Ultimately, I end up leaving Vassar to go to commute to, from school from home to school at Rutgers University. Hmm. So um, that was a that was kind of a, the better. I end up you know kind of giving myself a little bit more space to you know. Did you take some time off? Uh, a little bit, uh, but I, I ultimately I end up finishing the degree only a year late. Mm-hmm. So I just question of like cutting off a semester and then semester there here and there and. Uh, but I finished a year. I ultimately I finished a year of studies at Vassar. Gotcha. Yeah, um, that's a big decision. Yeah, Did, it was tough. Was because, it your decision? Were your parents weighing in? Uh, though I mean, like what happened was basically, uh, it was it was a really tough decision mm-hmm. because I, I didn't want to leave uh, what I considered a, a kind of prestigious school, and I felt like for me, I felt like going to Rutgers might be a little bit of a kind of a, a status. Mm-hmm. You know, the status of having a degree from Vassar might have been. But I mean, now I can't look back because it's more it's more for my own uh, health is more important. So, I, uh, you know, I end up going to Rutgers. But um, 
you know, it also in regards to the, the kind of illness and the, in regards to the experience I had at that time, there was a lot of, um, kind of disorganized thinking, you know, so, but I was able to overcome that by just focusing on that. I, I had to, you know, kind of study and get the degree and all this kind of thing. And, uh, I was hospitalized for like a year, uh, not a year, sorry, a week. So I was hospitalized for like a week, uh, during that time period. So that kind of disrupted things. But thankfully I was able to, I only lost about a year in the process and as far as like time goes like you know as, as studies go and such, right yeah. that's great yeah did you find that Rutgers was a more a healthier environment for you I think because I was commuting right so I didn't have too much of a I wasn't entangled in these kinds of uh, things that dorm life sometimes gets you involved in you know like in other words like uh, I wasn't so dependent on people to be there right you know I was kind of allowed the liberty of kind of going home and having my base at home and coming to class and then just making friends as, as I was able to. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, I had one other, you brought up the point of disorganized thinking. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an interesting part of making decisions. Like it, it, I'd not really thought about it that way, but it seems like the more organized your thoughts are, the easier it must be for you to like, look at all the data involved in a decision. Exactly. And, Make it. Yeah. But then on the other hand, maybe a little bit too much organization could cause problems too because there are infinite data points to every Mm. decision. And you, if you're super organized, then you kind of have too much to process all at once. I don't know if the brain can handle it. Yeah. I think also in the question of being 17 and 18, you know, there's a lot of emotional and uh, emotional stuff that comes up. Whereas, you know, when I look at, when I think of, when I snapshot myself now versus, at 18, this is 20 years ago now, I'm like 39 now. So when I think about 20 years progress, uh, I think the 18 year old me um, was very much like, there was, there was really a, a learning curve about how to deal with emotions mm. and, and sexuality. So that was something that now I'm very much, I'm, I'm more rational, I guess. I don't know. I'm more like, I'm very like structured in my thinking. I'm very, I have like a baseline right. of thoughts. And uh, I use like really an analytic approach. I have very cerebral analytic approach now, um, as opposed to what I was in nineteen. Was kind of very impulsive and very emotionally driven, and the decisions were almost like impulsively decision, impulsively driven. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think that must be something that happens when you get older. I'm like, I'm getting there. I can see it. And I think, I think the real skill there is, you know, you can have the cerebral approach. You can have the. like the way you want to approach things. But mm-hmm. then when things get, when your feelings get really big, it's so easy to abandon that and just go based on how you're feeling. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So what's the next big junction? What happened after college? So after college, I, um, I started to pursue a career in teaching. Mm. So, um, was I, that what you, what did you want to be when you were older as a younger person? Well, in college, I wanted to pursue theater and drama uh, because I was very interested in, in uh, high school and in, uh, I went to be like a director of a film, mm-hmm. a direct filmmaker or a director of theater. So, because I felt like I really, um, as I, I, as I had college, as I had high school and college, I was very interested in uh, like um, kind of these, uh, what do you call it? Like these filmmakers like, uh, Kubrick and uh, Spielberg or people who had like a body of work that like was there um, really defined them as a visionary mm-hmm. and these visionary directors and um, and and what's the name the guy Martin Scorsese people like them 
where they had a whole body of work that was like defining them as a as a person. I really was interested in that, and uh, I kind of had to abandon that because I felt like Indian Americans were not making headway, and and not so much by Indian Americans. I felt like there was a lot of kind of click is clicky kind of people in the theater world where people just simply weren't interested in uh they were clicking and they were kind of like you know very this kind of social things especially given that i was having trouble with the you know kind of my disorganized thinking and this kind of in that, in that time period um i found it very difficult to break into these yeah. social circles that were theater people and and drama people interesting yeah so ultimately i, I decided i would go my my mom was a teacher, mm-hmm. so uh, my my sister, as I mentioned, had followed my father's footsteps. Who was a doctor, she went into medical career. So I ended up saying, "Oh, you know, I guess I'll follow my mom's footsteps and going to education." Okay. I remember there was one instance where, on the first day, where even though I didn't enjoy uh, uh, substitute teaching, mm-hmm. but I, I ended up going to New York teaching fellows. And there was one moment where I was sitting in the orientation, and the student comes up to the mic and says. You know, he says he's kind of praising teachers and he's saying, you guys aren't in it for the money. And, you know, that's not why you're here. I'm thinking to myself, why the hell am I here? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm in it. Not that I was in it for the money, but I don't want to be impoverished either. And the right. way, you know, like I'm thinking to myself, what, what am I doing? And like the first year or so, actually, I didn't even survive the first year of teaching. I Six months or so, uh, the, the first few months, it was just such a torture, such an agony. Because uh, I just come out of college, basically. I was like uh, a few years after college, and um, I'm only like ten years older than these these kids, mm-hmm. and um, they didn't show me any respect, right. you know. And uh, I yeah, barely it was so difficult, and I barely knew what the, what I was doing. I mm-hmm. gotten very little training. The teaching bell is kind of jump starts you into teaching with uh, doing classes simultaneously to turn the degree simultaneously. So. Um, it was it was tough, and I I tried to weather it, but then I was like I I can't handle this, so I left teaching. The decision to leave teaching was, and also at the time the economy was extremely like in the slumps. So, but the decision to leave teaching was uh, a pivotal decision. I think that I I couldn't. Um, it was very much a acknowledgement that I'd reached a breaking point that I had to find a career that was more uh, suited to me. So, um, some of the goals that I had with going into teaching. About education, about uh, literacy, uh, was was uh, fulfilled in my career as a librarian. So I ended up doing the master's in library science and becoming a librarian. And hang uh, on, hang yeah. on, we're going so, too yeah, fast. We're going okay. to, yeah. I love the like the way you're describing this decision to first be and then no longer be a teacher. How long? How long was that phase of your life total? So I was a substitute teacher after college. For a short, for like a couple of years, and then um, a year or so spent. I spent a summer training with teaching fellows, and then a, a year passed until like so t- between two thousand one and two thousand five or so. I was spent in the teaching kind of air, uh, arena, okay, in some way. So four years, yeah, about four years. Yeah, got it. Yeah, it's crazy to think about the type. Like you, obviously, you described to me the decision to become a teacher, following mm-hmm. your mom's footsteps, and whatever, the other things that went into it. It's crazy that in in describing that experience to me, it sounds like there was no junction, no Mm. pivotal moment or decision made where you were like, I shouldn't be doing this anymore. It was like screaming itself at you. Like before you even started, you were like, I don't know if this is the right thing. Is that right? Yeah, I felt really compelled to it simply because um, I didn't know what else to do. So I felt kind of 
like an entire like a, the currents were taking me there. I felt right. very much compelled, mainly because like I, you know the as I was saying about the economy at that time, um, you know I didn't I couldn't find jobs. You know I was trying to look at different things. I didn't even know really what I, what kind of jobs to look for. Yeah, but teach substitute teaching was an easy job to get a per diem job to get, and and as long as you showed up, you know you basically mm-hmm. were getting regular work. And I did work at a theater, uh, George Street Playhouse in New Jersey, kind of keeping my my passion for theater going. But I again, I felt that kind of feeling that uh, theater groups and theater cliques were very much kind of not really attuned to. Um, there weren't really there weren't it's just too a many opportunities. Social environment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's definitely a bunch of really emotional, really um, performative people, mm. uh, and yeah, I can totally see how clicky it must have been yeah it's interesting that you brought up race i we're kind of backtracking here i did yeah. want to talk more about the theater thing uh-huh. it, that you brought up race in relation to that environment i yeah. i'm also indian american and it's kind of it's kind of an alienating space in the art world in general yeah like it's just not as common there there aren't like your people yeah in that world and now suddenly we're starting to see a rise in yeah you know in indian americans being prominent in the in, in the, the arts in yeah. the arts and i'm so it really touches my heart because uh i almost feel like i want to dive back in you know because yeah. i feel like maybe there'll be more opportunities now if i were to go back and but i don't know how i would negotiate that at this stage but interesting something you know i think definitely with my writing uh it's it's encouraged me when i hear and i listen to people like nizzi zanzari and, and all these other uh comedians and because uh, i did some improv i'm kind of skipping ahead but uh-huh. i did some i returned to theater in some way right in my later life and oh, cool. yeah so i was able to keep it as a as something i'm in touch with let's go back to your master's so uh-huh. when you decided to do that was it your escape car from teaching were you like all right i need to be done teaching what am i going to do next and it was that exactly yeah so when i got out teaching uh there was a period of time where I was like, you know, I was trying to do an assessment, like a vision board or not little. Maybe it's, maybe I did do a vision board, I don't remember. But I did some kind of assessment of where I was at, what I wanted to do. And my sister was like, you know, librarianship might suit you, you know, because uh, I had very much an interest in literature. I had very much an interest in education. Um, and I had very much an interest in kind of these kinds. I want to go into special libraries. So I wanted to like, uh, my objective was to work in a very specialized library. Um, I had this dream of like working for Academy of Arts and Sciences for their library of um, films and such. Oh, cool. So, and then I could get invited to the uh, Academy yeah. Awards and that would kind of bring together my passion for film and uh, my a career in library science or something. I really so. relate to what you just described of like, cart, like inventing your dream niche, being yeah. like, oh, like, I should specialize in this, but then like do this very specific thing. And exactly. you don't even know if that thing really exists. But yeah. like, yeah, I just, I relate to that a lot. Um, your sister recommended it to you though. Yeah. You, she was like, like it's was, not one of those careers that people think of. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was on the peripherally, peripherally it was on my, you know, just because from being in libraries and such, but I didn't think of it as a career as, as you're right. saying. So she was like, um, she kind of came to me and she was like, no, I really think this career, and especially I think she had looked at some job outlook at that time. Mm. And at that time in 2005, 2006, the job outlook was positive for it. But then actually, um, you know, I got hired, uh, I got hired because of my teaching experience, actually, ironically, 
you know, that when I was in, when I was doing the master's in library science, my professor recommended me for a children's librarian position in, uh, or connecting me to the library position um, with Queens Library because of the fact that I had some teaching experience. I one thing kind of, you know, something kind of leads into the other. And then I end up getting hired by Queens Library um, and uh, as a public library. And you know, I was a general children's librarian in the public library sphere. And although it wasn't, you know, kind of what I envisioned as, you know, as I was saying, the special libraries and all this kind of thing, I kind of felt like it was a smooth transition into uh, what I was doing before, what I had some experience with and going into that, um, that kind of thing, yeah. Cool. So you've been doing that ever since, right? Exactly, yeah. And have you worked for the same, for basically the exact same job this whole time? No, I've worked for Queen's Library, but... Um, I have a little bit of a restlessness when it comes to uh, career, I think. I think I've exhibited some restlessness in the sense that you know, every few years I apply for a different position, usually advancement. Hmm. So I try to go for an advanced position. I try to increase the um, – try to develop my skill sets and try to increase the challenges, you know, trying to always trying to one-up myself. So at Queen's Library, I became uh, – first I started with a children's librarian. Uh, I joined to general librarianship. And then I transferred into, I, I got promoted into assistant manager. So, um, you know, at the next level up, assistant manager. And then uh, supervising librarian, which is basically another level of assistant manager. And then, uh, you know, I think that this is kind of, I, I've been moving branches as well. So gotcha. the different branches. It's amazing to me that, you know, within Queens itself, a borough of New York City mm-hmm. has such a rich, um, you know, the, each neighborhood has a distinct flavor, a very... Uh, you know, it's so unique. Yeah. And something that New Yorkers... Do you live in Queens? Now I live in Queens, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you work and live in what neighborhood? So I live in uh, Kew Gardens. Actually, it's strange because like within a few blocks, there's like different neighborhoods. So I would say Briarwood, Kew Gardens, uh, right near Forest Hills. So I end up I end up working at Forest Hills. So gotcha. I'm working at Forest Hills, yeah. So Forest it's very Hills close. is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like I went out to the, the venue, the music venue out there. Mm-hmm. And it just looks like another planet. Yeah. Like, I can't believe that it's, you know, 20 minutes away from Brooklyn. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Forest Hills is a really great uh, great neighborhood. And uh, I think the Rockaways are very much underappreciated. I worked at the Rockaways for three years. Oh, really? And, at yeah. the library there? Yeah. That's fascinating. You're eating right. Ish. What's that? Oh, dear. You're going to bed early. Oh, is that okay? Huh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I interrupted by... Uh, Oh, that's okay. So, Where is the studio lot? Anyway, <laughs> yeah. sorry about that, folks. Technical difficulties. Um, so um, you've moved branches, like, physically, where yeah. you go to work. Yeah, I was working in the Rockaways three years, and then I worked in uh, um, Steinway or Astoria area. So I think, like, Astoria, Steinway, um, you know, the area, Long Island City area, um, Forest Hills, and Rockaways are my three favorite places in Queens, I think. Yeah. Um, let's talk, let's lean into the moment of restlessness that yeah. you're describing. That seems like it's almost like a mini junction. Exactly. I want you to go into detail about like what that starts to feel like, like very detailed, like, yeah. and how you know that you're having one of those and like how you decide to deal with it and what ends up coming of it. So basically what happens is, you know, when, when I start to fall into, I don't like patterns. I don't like, I like, I don't even like, well, routine is a one way of looking at it, but I don't like system, like kind of falling into a 
sleep mode where we make decisions based on the series of decisions we made prior. So when we go into like, um, you know, every day becomes like a repetition of the day before. Mm-hmm. And uh, this kind of pattern I try to avoid. I try to always um, introduce in my decision making on a day to day level kind of an erratic beat. So in other words, like I, I have like even making lunch decisions, I try not to go, like I, I usually tend to eat out lunch and I try not to go to the same place every day. I always try to find new places mm-hmm. within the forests there, which is pretty convenient. The forests has a lot of choices. Mm-hmm. So I always try to, when I go to the same place, I try to introduce a new dish, you know, a new thing. Oh, interesting. So I always so try to, yeah. Making this big effort around novelty. Exactly, exactly. And trying to expose myself to, or trying to introduce myself, challenge myself to go out of my comfort zone all the time, you know, to continually push my my limits of how. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's basically, because uh, definitely my, my, my parents and my parents stayed in the same job in the same area you know for their whole career basically hmm. my dad was in um you know a medical group that he worked on staten island and he stayed in there that position for a long time for his whole career basically and my mom also was in uh you know and you know for a long time she was in the same school so it definitely doesn't come from my parents because they, my parents all actually see this kind of re- professional and personal restlessness as like you know they kind of enigmatic um but i think it comes from perhaps uh just the generational aspect of, you know, kind of, you know, that my peers having, uh, you know, and other other people in my contemporaries having this idea that they're switching careers a lot. And although I didn't technically switch careers after ten years, I've been in the same company, mm-hmm. uh, the same, you know, Queens Library. But uh, at the same time, there's a kind of a feeling that, you know, I want to continue to uh, mimic or uh, not. It's not really a question of mimicking, but mainly just for myself trying to explore new things, try new experiences. I do a lot of travel as well, and I try to um, always go to a different country. You know, I try not to visit the same country, you know, more than a few times. So you're yeah. really making an effort yeah. on this. So yeah. more specifically, when with your job thing, like what's the feeling of needing to apply for something different, needing to take a step up? And like, like how long do you sit on that feeling before you do something with it? Yeah, I think that I'm always keeping an eye open yeah. towards opportunities. And I think that um, there's also a, a feeling like when you stay in a place too long that there is a lot of interpolitics of a group, you know, the dynamics of a group. Right. And that bothers me. Mm-hmm. It kind of, I feel like once you get into the kind of politics of a, of a group, any group, uh, I start to feel like a little bit like, all right, you know, I want to kind of keep it a little bit at a distance. I, it's hard to explain because um, it's just a feeling, a sensation that I, uh, in the body I feel that, um, you know, that... Uh, is it like annoyed or is it... It's a, it's a low level of frustration. Yeah. That, uh, you know, uh, it's not even... At, it's not the people themselves. It's mm-hmm. more like the dynamics... Totally. ...of a situation that you feel like I've worn out. But it's not, you know, I've worn out that the dynamics of... There's no... There's, I'm trying to always find avenues for new things fresh avenues so once i've kind of tread uh, treaded down a few um avenues i feel like oh i want to kind of keep keep it going you know right i i de- definitely also have this moment in groups where i start to understand and like n- be more aware of the group dynamic mm-hmm. and that hasn't yes it's frustrating but it 
never makes me want to be at a distance. It's like almost the opposite reaction of like, oh, now that I understand their dynamic, I want to like win at it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I need to dive into that. Exactly, so that's exactly. a really funny thing. Yeah. At the same time, I've had friends that uh, I've maintained since high school. Mm-hmm. So I have a very good network of friends that I've maintained since high school. But um, so it's not even about the social thing. It's more about the professional. Right. Um, like my skill sets. I want to have a diverse set of skill sets. Yeah. And I want to be able to. Um, I just see people who are highly successful. Mm-hmm. And I think that I feel like they have had varied experiences and, and they've had, I kind of model, I kind of think to myself, you know, the most successful people are people who have many tools and I want to be able to, you know, continue to develop those you know, varied or, you know, I know it's just a question of just hammering away. Yeah. Know? What was your high school like? You did theater? I did, uh, my high school was uh, in Staten Island. So uh, I did a little bit of theater, but again, like kind of the return theme of kind of they were the theater kids and I tried to, um, you know, I wasn't in that clique so much. I mean, I felt like there was kind of like a, an, uh, certain tiers of cliques or whatever. So I did some theater, you know, and ensemble and such like that. But my senior year in high school, I tried to create an opportunity for myself mm-hmm. where I got together these uh, people who were also having this feeling of alienation from the theater groups who were interested in theater. And I said, why don't we put on a production of No Exit by Jean-Paul Sartre and then, you know, I, I was going to direct that. And then my, my friend was going to direct uh, Zoo Story by Edward Albee. So we we're going to do a night at the theater. Um, so I spent the senior year kind of working on producing or presenting this theater show. And um, by the end of the year, though, uh, there was some political, like in the sense of, I'll just give a quick summary. I, I tell the story like it takes me like a long time to tell. But uh, one of the teachers in the um, one of my teachers in the AP political science teacher basically had told me that he wanted me out of the class because he he just he said to me um, lack of performance lack of ability hmm. and it was a very strange thing to say and I felt very insulted so that's uh, literally insane yeah. that's yeah. your job to make it, like <laughs> teach me abilities exactly teacher? exactly that's crazy and this is this is a teacher who I'd worked with in um I'd been I'd been under his. Like uh, I was in student government, so yeah. he was you were someone who was a good clear, student. Yeah. You got into good colleges. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, so it was a very strange thing. And then uh, I ended up putting a pineapple on his car. So it was a very strange story. But uh, that's, that's kind of the prank. I'm kind of like yeah. Was, was it a, like a carved pineapple? Or it was a like pineapple that I a whole I, pineapple. I, I split it in half. Oh, and then the half it I put in the front windshield and half it from the back windshield. And uh, this is kind of like my my kind of way of you know, showing him up or showing that, that this kind of thing. And then I end up confessing to it. You showed him. Yeah. I, I know. I end up confessing to yeah. it and it called attention to the way he was acting. Um, but then ultimately, you know, the, the administration was like, you know, the school administration kind of called my dad in and my dad was strangely uh, very uh, understanding because he knew that he knew the circumstances under which, you know, this, this prank had happened. So like I kind of told him a little bit about it. Um, and he was very understanding and, uh, uh, he said, just, you know, kind of don't do it again, kind of thing. But I ended up doing a day's detention and, uh, I paid him, I paid the teacher $20 for his car wash. So <laughs> that was kind of the, the end of it. But, so uh, wait, what does that have to do with no exit? So, uh, yeah. So then the reason why no exit didn't happen was because of that. Oh, so, because you were punished. Because I was punished. Yeah. So uh, there was kind of, uh, 
the the teacher who was the advisor on the no exit project mm-hmm. kind of basically communicated to me when I went to the student government office to just hang out. He was basically like, "You're a persona non grata in this office," and I'm like, "Because it, it wasn't even like it was just kind of I wasn't even in student government at that time." So he's basically like, "Oh, you know, you did something bad. You're not welcome here." And he basically cut me off from the the um, performance. He he no longer wanted to be the advisor for the performance. Huh. So I try. I was very stubborn. Did though. your friends still get to do the Albi? Uh, we I was basically me kind of orchestrating this whole thing. Got so it. I was very stubborn. I tried to um, find an alternative area to do it in, and I made all these efforts, and I was kind of running on empty though like in the sense that i didn't have any backing of the uh school so but then uh i think the one of the one of the girls who uh was starring in it as um in in no exit i, I think the last time i'd seen her i saw her after that recently but i'm saying the last time i seen her for a number of years was like i told her just we'll we'll get this together memorize your lines we'll meet and we'll, we'll we'll make this happen and then i didn't see her for like 20 years and then i saw her i happened to see her like and randomly, That's you know, so it's just funny. so strange how, yeah. you know, we leave things sometimes, you know? Right. Yeah. That feels like a junction. Imagine yeah. if you had directed a play. This is kind of like a rude line of logic uh-huh. to take yeah. you down. So I apologize. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. imagine if you had directed a play in yeah. high school, right? That's yeah. kind of a, a, a thing that st- stays with you. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, I did in college, I did direct Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, cool. So I did get a chance to direct a full length play. But uh, that also was another, you know, like emotional and psychological kind of drain. Right. And that's also one of the reasons why I was like, oh, I probably won't go into a career in theater because it was just such a, such an, uh, it was such a long process. Yeah. And I think uh, that was also one of the contributing factors to me being like, maybe theater isn't the right choice for me, but I think it has to do with a lot, a lot of other complicated um, factors were involved in the sense of like, you know, I think if I were to return to directing or if I were to do something with theater or something like that, in my, at this stage in my life, you know, I would be able to um, handle the stresses of management and, and all these kinds of things. So I've done a lot of that in the library. Uh, and I've continued with some improv. I decided when I was starting with the management. I, I do yeah. want to talk yeah. about yeah. improv sure, sure. and yeah. your return to it, sure, but sure. I want to go a little bit deeper on your direction the first time uh, you directed a full-length play you found it very draining yeah. do you mind talking more about that sure. like that seems like what steered you in a certain direction or away from one so i'm curious so basically uh it had to do with uh because i put together i and i do also with the, the recurring theme of like these cliques and these people these social circles so when i was proposed to the theater at rutgers to to, to do the show um they allowed me, they said, okay, they awarded me the slot. And then uh, I had to put together a crew to help maintain mm-hmm. it. And, you know, addition all these process of this. And in that process, I found it difficult, more difficult than I think than other directors had. You know, I think mm-hmm. other directors who... Which parts of it? Uh, just the question of getting people to, to work with me. You know, I felt oh. like they were kind of standoffish about it. And they were kind of like... And I don't think it has to do, I think it just has to do with the fact they wanted to work with their friends or something. Mm-hmm. So I had to um, kind of overcome obstacles. I was also I was a commuter student. I was coming in to Rutgers, you know, to do stuff there. And then, uh, you know, I'd done a few scenes and stuff. And people, I felt like the atmosphere, um, sometimes they were a little colder or chilled. Hmm. So um, finally, I ended up finding a few people to work with. But the, the dynamics of 
my management and having people. I had an assistant director. I had a stage manager. Uh, and the dynamics, the group dynamics were a little weird. Uh, they were just kind of like a lot of personalities and, and they were yeah. kind of, um, it just ended up working out to be more stressful right. than I needed it to be. Yeah, like it sounds like struggling relationally yeah. is kind of an area that is better for you to avoid. Yeah, I think that I've learned, I think that I've learned kind of in my management style to, uh, I've learned a lot since that time in leadership and management to be able to uh, be more objective, be more analytic, be more uh, cerebral. And that's been a, a strong ace in my, in my deck, Yeah, you know, not to be kind of impulsive or emotional right. about responses to when people push your buttons or when people uh, kind of do things that are provocative to kind of maintain a kind of objective or kind of that observer uh, aspect. Was know? there something that led you to that way of being? Yeah, all these experiences, the uh, uh, experience of, um, cause I, you know, as I was mentioning, the diagnosis happened in 97, and I kind of uh, um, was on a therapy medication uh, regimen. Okay. Uh, so I was on and that, and I would seek therapy pretty regularly. I still seek therapy. Um, and I kind of, I think that the experience of being in therapy has allowed that kind of process to unfold itself in this way, in this direction. I've seen, I've, I had different therapists over the year, the test 20 years, but um, the process of being in therapy in general. It's pretty analytical. It's pretty analytical, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're having yeah. to describe exactly what happened to mm. someone and you have to try not to lie. And like, yeah. you just, yeah, that's interesting. I think even the process, I'm in therapy too, the process of going once a week and having to report your week to someone yeah. sort of makes you notice things more. Yeah. Like, you know that at the end of a certain week, you're going to have to describe it to someone so mm -hmm. you remember more. I yeah, feel like. it makes you very aware. Yeah. It heightens your awareness. And uh, I think the process for me is 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 the, um, the therapist is supposed to facilitate your ability to um, kind of monitor or oversee your own psychological process. And I think that's been successful for me that um, it's almost it's almost like a sounding board. So I think that that has enhanced my ability to be analytic and be cerebral and and really up those, those cool. aspects. Yeah. Okay. So with about 13, 12 minutes left, I want to talk about, it seems like the trend that we're getting toward is you having this job, it's a stable job and it suits you, but you're yeah. also seeking to bring your old passions, your writing, your improv, and now radio back into mm -hmm. your life. So yeah. let's talk about... Let's talk about all three of those. Yeah. Improv, what was the decision like to in reintroduce that? So when I first became a manager, mm -hmm. assistant manager, uh, there was always these transitionary processes where I had to really confront the kind of, um, you know, self-doubt uh, that I had kind of germinating from this uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf experience, a director yeah. who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Just self-doubt my leadership <laughs> experience. Yeah, but also, I mean... Uh, I meant specifically about like leading groups. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, kind of that and, and, and how. And then um, I was like, you know, I thought to myself, I need to the bite of the dog or the, the, hair, of you the know, hair of the dog, your hair of the yeah. dog. So I have to go back to theater because I think that was what gelled me. Wow. And I was like, in order to overcome my self-conscious, sort of come, overcome my self-doubt, I said improv was the best thing for me to do. 
Um, somebody I knew, uh, someone I know, a very good friend of mine, was doing improv, and I felt that, and I, after seeing his shows, I felt that that was a, a positive. Uh, he, he kind of communicated to me that it was a positive experience. Mm-hmm. People are very supportive, and um, and they help you feel your confidence. So I, I felt like that was appropriate what I needed, the kind of uh, jolt that I needed. So I, I did a ser- series of improv levels uh, through the People's Improv Theater, um, and uh, that did help me. It did overcome a lot of the self-conscious, all of that self-doubt. And in leadership, when I'm dealing with any kind of presentation or interaction with being a, a supervisor, um, I feel much more confident, much more gelled with that. Cool. So, yeah. How do you think, to get into the nitty-gritty of that, how do you think uh-huh. that works? I've heard that, you know, we think of, or we hear about improv as therapy a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that it ignites something in your personality, but, like, what do you, what exactly do you think it was? Yeah, I think it's, like, the idea that in improv that, yes, and, that you're oh. kind of, a, you're kind of, whatever comes you're out of you. rolling with it. Yeah, you're rolling with that, and you're kind of not, you're kind of, it's, in a sense, it was my attempt to also parallel and i say the the positives of analytic and thinking but you know also play the other card you know Mm -hmm. being of trying to develop the ability to be coming from the gut you know something for drawing from the gut and feeling confident about whatever i say and that improv helped develop that muscle which i felt was a little bit lacking at that stage in my life right so it helped me develop the ability to just say something and have it come from a a whole place a, a very confident place Cool. Yeah. That feels like a major junction. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and let's also check back in on your writing. So yeah. this is sort of a thread through your life. You'd been doing it since the fourth grade without stopping, right? Yeah. I mean, I had some periods where I was kind of like fallow in it, but just because of the fact that uh, I was processing a realigning mm-hmm. my life. But uh, by the time we hit, um, you know, the library and the management, I was doing, I was taking classes in, uh, writing classes as well. So, I, you know, I, intermittently I was taking writing classes, improv classes. I always continue the education on the side. Thankfully, the library has hours that permit that. So I was continuing to develop, you know, kind of outside education. So I cool. did a lot of writing in that in classes and such, yeah. Is, is writing something you have to make yourself do or is it like the thing you look most forward to doing? Um, a little mix, a mix. A yeah, it's a mix, a little bit of both. I think the main thing is that... Um, you know, I, I have uh, uh, pers- these ideas that I want to express and in whatever form they come out in. Um, that's why I end up doing this uh, Truth to Power show because uh, it was just another way to access. Um, you know, I interview a lot of poets and writers and we're talking about kind of pushing myself into the next forum of getting into more political stuff and getting into more uh, how the personal is political, I explore. So, and how these, our life choices and our, life decisions are very uh, charged with um, some kind of political aspect. We think of political as being simply a, a matter of state, but actually it's really a, a state of being. Right. Let's talk a little bit more about like the birth of your show. So mm-hmm. when was the moment where you were like, I should really do this in audio form or like in general, like what, tell me about the birth of this idea. So basically um, when I, I was awarded a 2017 new works grant, by Queen's Arts Council to write cool. a, a follow-up to The Escape from Samsara, okay. which I envisioned as Celebrity Sadhana or How to Meditate with a Hammer. So I took the themes of uh, spiritual practice and I brought them into the celebrity world. And then uh, it was kind of a... And then I was like, I was looking at kind of the thematics in my life about sadhana and about spiritual practice and about 
um, all the different things that we've been talking about, but how to psychological process. Mm-hmm. And then um, I started to think to myself, you know, I wanted to be able to reach more people that um, reach an audience that sometimes people glaze over when you talk about poetry. You know, they kind of their eyes kind of glaze over. They're like they have such a knee jerk reaction mm-hmm. to this kind of the poetry as being like an academic or so. They, it's still it's still hard to reach people with poetry. So I want to be able to get at, at po- what, what I was getting at with poetry that poetry is a vehicle towards larger socioeconomic and personal themes in my life as well, and how uh, you know that that we as people as society um, are moving towards a place where. There's no division between the political self and the personal self, you know. So that's why I want to be able to express that and, and get into conversations with people in the community that I, I networked with over the years of writing, mm-hmm. and be able to platform the idea that um, there's nothing private, you know. That every private decision we made is informed by actually these larger institutions, these larger historical traditions, and that we're all kind of waves on the notion that we're actually manifestations of hmm. these uh, forces that are. Uh, very subtle, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. so interesting. There's nothing private. It's, yeah. it's almost, I can tell it's the type of idea that no one's really brought up to me, and so uh, it needs time to percolate, and yeah. it's going to like stick with me, and I'm going to be thinking about it. Yeah. Um, How is it going? And also, like, do a bit of promo. What's your next guest going to be? So I think it's going very well. Um, We had uh the holiday episode, as I mentioned, uh, on the on Truth Power was my best friend for 25 years who went over his... uh. Um, his transition into atheism, and then um, and uh, his his feelings towards mental health, mm-hmm. which was pretty much what I think. But um, you know, it was good to have a mental health counselor. He's a trained mental health counselor. Oh, cool. Give his opinions and give his perspectives. Um, but of course, uh, you know, he's been my friend for so long that his perspectives informed one thing feeds into the other. Right. And then I had um, a guest, Tejas Desai, who's a writer whose uh, his themes and his ideas of his episodes were very much, uh, he's also Indian American and he has a lot of themes about multiculturalism and writing and all these themes are very much in line with what I believe and it helps me enhance kind of my perception of these themes and my ideas and then being able to have the conversation. We, we meet people, we have friends with people, but we're not always in touch with something deeper and I think the show allows me to have those conversations where I can get touch that nerve. Yeah, uh, yeah, we have that in common for sure. I, It's funny, this is my third episode and I think in all three I've gotten to know members of this RB community in ways that I like never would have otherwise. Yeah. And everyone has these funny stories from their past. Now I know about your pineapple. <laughs> I feel like Tom had a really similar... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you listened to Tom's episode, but the the going to the zoo instead of showing up for rehearsal, uh-huh. that's your pineapple story. yeah. Um, uh, what else was I going to say? Um, do you want to do like a little plug? Oh, who's your upcoming guest and where can people find your show? Sure. So, um, radiofreebrooklyn.com backslash, uh, truth to power. Mm-hmm. And my next guest is going to be Maria Dessa Ekretale. And we talked a little bit about, I think the, the, the major theme of that was bearing witness and how, um, you know, her as a black American, Bear, bear witness to that experience and bearing witness to being a woman, being being a mother, um, and how that can inform writing. And that's very inspirational to me because I try to bear witness to my experience and uh, and try. And that's a very 
charged sometimes charged thing to to speak our truth in these times you know yeah you mentioned that observing observing yourself Uh i wish that we had more time to get into buddhism because i'm yeah i feel like we could fill up a whole other show on it so maybe i'll have to have you on again sometime thank you uh is there anything else did we cover did we cover your whole life yeah i think i think definitely the major thematics um you know i think that uh when you explore the Escape from Samsara, you'll see that, um, you know, a lot oh, of it plug has... plug your to, books, too. Yeah, Escape from Samsara. And the, the, the last book, The Celebrity Sovereign, actually, I haven't published yet. I'm not sure. I'm still deciding to decide if I want to self-publish again or if I want to find a publisher. Um, so that's kind of a complicated decision-making process. Got it. What about to, your memoir? What's that called? Uh, no, I haven't, I, I've just written, like, kind of oh. brief pieces. Memoiring yeah, your life memoiring as you my go. Life. Yeah, as I go along. Maybe one cool. day I'll definitely do that. Yeah, you'll have Thank to. You. Yeah. Uh, okay, I think we're about out of time. I guess yeah. it's time for me to go into my credits. Um, we're here broadcasting live from Radio Free Brooklyn studio in Bushwick. RFB is a community-funded nonprofit organization, so funded by listeners like you. If you could go to the website to find out how to donate, um, your contributions are always appreciated. My theme song is by Nation of Language. Check them out on Bandcamp. If you have any questions about me or the show or you, listener, have a twisty-turvy life story that you'd like to share um, with as a series of junctions, please contact me on Facebook, Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, sorry, it's Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn is my Facebook page. You can email me, asha at radiofreebrooklyn.org. That's about it for today. Next week's guest. uh, You know what? I'm not going to plug next week's guest yet. You're just going to have to tune in and see. It'll be a surprise. (laughs) Thanks for listening.